There's nothing more undermining of trust than giving people an over-optimistic impression of what something can do for them. Today on The Recommended Dose, David Tovey, who for 10 years was the editor-in-chief of the Cochrane Library. Hello, I'm Ray Moynihan, and welcome to the podcast promoting a more questioning approach to healthcare. Produced by Cochrane Australia and co-published by the BMJ, where David Tovey also spent time as an editor. I started the conversation with David talking about his early years as a family doctor in South London at a time when the evidence-informed approach to medicine and the guidelines flowing from it were just taking hold. They were useful to a point and undoubtedly helped have perhaps more fruitful conversations with patients. Uh, But I felt then, as I still do feel, that there was a risk that it came across as somewhat authoritarian. And so sometimes evidence seemed to me to be saying, you're doing the wrong thing, you should be doing this, or um, you should not be doing this, you should be doing that. And so evidence, when I was actually practising in general practice, was, I would say, on the margins within, within most consultations. And uh, it was difficult, I genuinely found it difficult to bring evidence into the consultation. I wasn't sufficiently skilled, I didn't have the knowledge, so I knew there was something out there but I couldn't quite get a handle on it. Uh, And then this advert came out in the BMJ for a deputy editor for clinical evidence, which was a BMJ evidence product. And it just seemed a a really interesting prospect. And I I still feel that I was mightily unqualified. But obviously I put my application in and uh, shortly afterwards was appointed. And so something that had been inconceivable to me several months earlier, which was leaving general practice, suddenly became what I did. So I took a step out of general practice completely, never to return uh, in 2003, and moved to work as deputy to Fiona Godley on uh, clinical evidence at the BMJ. So you were at the BMJ for quite a few years before you took up your post as the editor-in-chief at Cochrane. What sort of memories do you have of that time? I mean, for the listeners who don't know what it's like inside one of the world's most influential medical journals that also happens to be a co-promoter of this podcast, just give us a sense of what it's like inside there on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it really was the most exciting thing to do for somebody who had sat in an office for uh, the last 15 years. People had to knock on the door to come in, often quite isolated, even with a team. Uh, suddenly to be find myself in an open plan office. But then meeting these extraordinary people, both inside the BMJ and outside, people I'd heard of but certainly had never spoken to. And there was one experience that always sits with me that I was sitting at my desk, I think it was a Tuesday, about three months in, and somebody came to me and said, you know, would you be free to go to India at the weekend? (laughs) And I said, no, that had never happened to me in general practice, not surprisingly. (laughs) And uh, so I said, of course I would. What's the reason? And um, it turned out there was a meeting of uh, many or all of the Indian Medical School deans to talk about medical education and uh, the BMJ had been invited to send somebody and um, I think it's fair to say that I wasn't the first choice but I suppose I did have some medical education background so so there I was four or five days later sitting on an aeroplane going out to Manipal University to um, to talk to medical deans and it was that sort of 
combination of this sort of internal office, you know, highly meeting, working with really inspiring people, but then also getting out of the office and meeting some of the people across the world who are all trying in in different ways to bring evidence into practice and policy in their setting. You mentioned Fiona Godley. Of course, Fiona was the first guest on The Recommended Dose. Yeah. And uh, such a great interview, lots of intimacy, but but again, digging into these real uh, issues around evidence. Well, let's move to your time at Cochrane. In 2009, you become the editor-in-chief. What motivated you to take that step to become a very senior official at what is, a, you know, a giant, sprawling global collaboration? I think the primary motivation at that point was the uh, the size of the opportunity, really. I'd worked in in evidence for six or seven years. I'd attended a number of Cochrane colloquia. I'd met uh, many Cochrane people. I was fairly aware of uh, some of the challenges ahead. I knew that it wouldn't be straightforward, but it just seemed to me to be the most extraordinary opportunity to get involved in this international community with this really high ideals and uh, uh, a sense of wanting to change the world, really. One of the big challenges that David Tovey feels that he and Cochrane have addressed in the past decade is improving the quality and consistency of systematic reviews. As many listeners may know, Cochrane's a giant not-for-profit collaboration of people around the world producing summaries of the evidence about what works and what doesn't in healthcare, much of which is available on the web for people to use to help inform their decisions. And as David explains... The closer you look at the evidence, the more uncertain it often gets. Yes, I mean, that's a crucial piece. You know, one of the most notable things that I hear when I listen to reports on the radio and elsewhere or even in the the newspapers about research is that very rarely do people talk about uncertainty. Research is usually presented as being these great breakthroughs and, you know, this treatment was twice as effective or whatever. And uh, I think the really important work within a systematic review is to identify uncertainty, whether it comes from risk of bias of the way that the trials were conducted or reported um, or to uh, other elements of the uh, findings that can introduce this idea that the results that we find may or may not be close to uh, the true effect of a treatment in a given situation. And again, this, you know, that comment, I think I'm right in saying, David, un- underscores the importance of, of us all, I guess, being much more aware of the uncertainty around a lot of evidence. Because as you say, media and, and perhaps other, other players here often try to, to overstate the certainty, uh, certainly overstate the benefits of things, but overstate how certain we are about whether something works or not. And one of the roles of Cochrane and the systematic reviews it produces is to try and bring a bit more clarity to just how uncertain the evidence can be on occasions, notwithstanding sometimes when the evidence is very clear. I think uncertainty is generally the rule. You know, I think we the idea that we um, have situations that are entirely clear-cut, I think we see that relatively infrequently. And, you know, that leads to...
to uncertainty, which you know people don't always feel comfortable with, but actually is our attempt to have a realistic assessment of what the evidence is saying. And you know, one of the real influences on me from 20 years ago, which I often talk about, is a, a lecture by uh, somebody called Per Fugelli, where he talked about the building blocks of trust. And you know, it seems to me that trust is really important in medicine. And two of the building blocks he uh, identified in that were realism and sharing power, which, in, you know, in a sense, are the building blocks of shared decision making. So you, uh, you have to be able to communicate a realistic assessment of how effective or harmful treatments are. And we have to then allow people to make their decisions, accepting that they may not make the same decision that we would have made. Those words of music to my ears in a way, because I think I'm right in saying that there's a sense sometimes that some people are worried about transmitting or communicating uncertainty because they suspect it it may decrease trust in the value of of healthcare interventions. But I think what you and the person you quoted are, are saying is that being realistic, being more honest, being more transparent about the uncertainty in medical science may ultimately help to build trust between the system and, and those it's seeking to serve. Yes, I think there's nothing more undermining of trust than giving people an over-optimistic impression of what something can do for them. And, you know, I think some of the language that's used in healthcare is genuinely misleading and certainly and, and will give people a misleading impression that, you know, there are wonder drugs that if you take this treatment, you will you know escape this poor outcome. Whereas in, in almost every situation, you're only at best increasing the risk that you avoid this poor outcome. And that risk can include the poor outcome happening. During your time, am I right in saying that Cochrane has become much more truly global in a sense with networks now reaching into South America, Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia. The whole Cochrane Library, I think, is now available in Spanish and there are translations in many languages. Were you in any way an architect of of that expansion or has it just happened while you were there? How, How did this come about? Well, I can't claim I, 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 I can claim my part in, in, in it, um, but it was certainly a, a team effort. You're listening to the recommended dose today with Dr. David Tovey, who until earlier this year was the editor in chief at Cochrane which has greatly expanded its global reach in the past decade, with, for example, huge growth in the numbers of people using reviews in languages other than English. Cochrane is a unique organisation, highly unusual in the sense that it's a, it's a collaboration of you know, tens of thousands, perhaps over 40,000 people from many, many countries. What do you see as a, as a key ingredient to making such, a, such an ambitious project actually work? I think that for Cochrane to be an international organisation is hugely important. There's traditionally been a tendency for Cochrane's activities to be focused around countries such as uh, the UK, Australia, Canada, and so on. But this increasing expansion out of those areas, I think, is really essential if Cochrane really wants to think itself as global. And I I think 
has now reached a situation where it's that you know it's unarguable that Cochrane is 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 wholly international. I think in order to make that really a success, we have to find ways to make sure that there the gateways to um, access, but also the gateways to involvement in Cochrane's activities are you know are fully staffed, so that we're facilitating people getting involved in Cochrane, influencing the agenda making sure that their priorities become Cochrane's priorities, uh, making sure that we're training people through the geographic centres to support Cochrane in a number of different ways, not just by becoming review authors, but perhaps by editors, peer reviewers, readers, users. Uh, And so really making sure that those doors are open. And uh, I think sometimes in the past, Cochrane has given slightly mixed messages in this area, and that really has to be overcome. And I think the movement of the last few years, we've really uh, expanded uh, new centres in South America, in Eastern Europe, and so on, and Southeast Asia, are a signal to the world that Cochrane wants to be uh, global. It wants to um, be influenced and, ha- to ha- and, and to attract uh, researchers and, uh, and other people who are interested in health and healthcare. And of course, sometimes, David, this collaboration doesn't work so well. And yourself and, and many of the listeners will know that last year there was a very public uh, falling out within Cochrane, a high profile expulsion of a very senior board member, a resignation from other members you know, a lot of concern and anxiety on all sides about this. Now, of course, this podcast is funded by Cochrane Australia. We're not an investigative journalism outfit, so we're not talking to all sides of this conflict. But with those caveats, you know, do you want to share your thoughts about what happened and what some of the sort of key issues there were? Uh, Not so much the personalities, but the issues that this raises, the questions this raises for Cochrane from your perspective. It's clearly a difficult area for me to discuss, that although uh, in some ways I was close to what was happening, in others I was quite distant. So I have some awareness of the issues that were the source of unhappiness on both sides of this going into the meetings in Edinburgh. But I have no, I have no knowledge of what was discussed or what was said in the meetings um, why the group of people on the board came to the decisions they did. And obviously, you know, I think it was unfortunate that the board lost some members. You know, you might think I was quite close to the events. I, I genuinely find it very difficult to comment on the actual detail of, w- of what was decided and why, because I wasn't involved in those conversations. And, I, and you know, those conversations, to a very large extent, have stayed, have stayed private uh, appropriately. Uh, so trying to move out a little bit from the individual details because, you know, we're not going to delve into those here, moving out to what the wider issues or wider implications might be, I think I'm right in saying that that certainly at the very least there's a perception that some of the conflict was related to the role of industry in healthcare and the issue of conflict of interest, issues around industry influence over evidence and how to deal with that and how Cochrane can deal with that. And, of course, these issues around conflict of interest are very dear to your heart, to everyone's hearts in in this game. 
they go to the trust and in integrity issues as well. So can we talk just briefly about this? Because I know that Cochrane has a review going on of its own conflicts of interest policies. What's your view about the role of that review? What do you hope to see Cochrane do about this huge fundamental challenge in medicine about industry's influence over the evidence it sponsors? Okay, so firstly, I'm not sure that uh, the role of industry or conflict of interest played a significant part in the decisions in Edinburgh. If it did, I'm not aware of that. What I hope for from the Cochrane policy is, I would say, the the policy needs to be uh, clearer in areas and less prone to misunderstanding in some areas. So it needs to be clearer. Uh, It probably needs to be slightly stricter. Clearly, there is a group of people in Cochrane that would like to see the removal of any individuals who have any conflicts from Cochrane reviews. And I know that Fiona, for example, holds that view. I think that's a really difficult ask. I think that in some areas, in those situations, finding people who can conduct the reviews would be extremely difficult and you know, that would not necessarily improve the overall offering to the users of Cochrane Reviews. But again, you know, that's a decision Cochrane might make. You know, it's clearly one of the things that's on the table is whether uh, Cochrane should aim to uh, remove people with any financial conflict interest from being an author altogether. The next question is too big probably for any of us to really deal with, but I want to ask you anyway, just briefly before we move from Cochrane, and that is how do we deal with this fundamental problem that so much of the basic evidence, so much of the the clinical trial evidence is funded by industry? And so once we review it and we summarise it and we produce reviews of that evidence, we run the risk of amplifying the biases inherent in that evidence base. How on earth do we deal with that problem? Well, I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a huge question. It's a huge question. Nothing Cochrane can do about the review authors has any impact on the fact that in many, many areas of medicine, all or nearly all of the research is conducted by people with a clear financial interest. The difficulty here is um, you get to a point where you say, well, well, what do we do about that? In an ideal world, the bulk or all of the research would be conducted independently. But maybe I'm wrong, but I can't see that happening anytime soon. In your final editorial at Cochrane, David, you said the world needs a strong, healthy and sceptical Cochrane. What did you mean by that? Okay, so what I was trying to say was that I think that in discussions outside Cochrane, in what I read, in what I hear, there seems to be the continuing perception that new treatments uh, are always beneficial compared with old treatments. Uh, There seems to be a very little appreciation of the risks of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. And so there's this over-optimistic impression of what health and healthcare interventions can do to help people. And that can relate to drugs, but it can equally relate to diet or or exercise or uh, any other type of intervention we might think about. And I think there are very few organisations in the world who are consistently trying to look at that really critically and ask the question, you know, we might think that telemedicine or you know, introduced use of digital technologies is going to be great for healthcare, but what does the evidence from research really tell us about that? Because time after time after time, we find that when we do that, we find that the effects, the benefits of 
treatments have been overstated and the harms have been understated. And therefore, the role of Cochrane as being a dispassionate, straight down the line, let's look at this critically and really understand the benefits and harms of this intervention in this situation, that's a really important function. And I'm not sure there are many other organisations in the world with the capacity uh, or indeed the skills to do it. While Cochrane reviews are regarded as something of a gold standard in terms of evidence, they are in no way immune from criticism and in some cases come under heavy attack. I asked David Tovey about the challenges for an organisation publishing reviews on particularly contentious topics where there might be divergent views about what the evidence is showing. We have, over several years, put in place processes that really seek to identify those reviews at high risk and to make sure they go through an absolutely scrupulous process to iron out any clear weaknesses. Um, Often they're not every interpretation where there's a slightly over-optimistic or over-pessimistic interpretation that we need to address. But there's no question, it's very challenging. And, of course, in the one experience last year where the the criticism came from inside the organisation, or people who were, at least some of them, were inside the organisation, that can be very painful. But I think one has to be very clear-headed about this. Cochrane puts its reviews out there. It welcomes criticism and feedback. If somebody comes in and points out something that's wrong, and this has happened on several occasions in the last 10 years, to my knowledge, uh, we've aimed to put that right very quickly. Um, I think you have to take complaints seriously, wherever they come from and whoever they are, and even if they're people that have a clear conflict of interest, you have to look at it as seriously as you can and come to the best decision you can. And if, uh, as a result, you decide that the review needs to be changed. You have to change the review and change it quickly and you have to be transparent about why you've done it and what you've done. Another challenge here is the rise of pseudoscience, the rise of fake news that we all know about now, including in healthcare, and where we have the knowledge from systematic reviews being overshadowed by health or wellness bloggers with millions and millions of followers. How can we deal with that challenge? Um, I, I think I probably see it less black and white than that. I think I've seen experiences over the last two, three years where people have made fundamental and reasonable criticisms of one or more reviews and the researchers have simply dismissed them in those sort of terms of pseudoscience and so on. But actually the points they were making were quite reasonable. Uh, I've certainly seen what you describe, people making points that I think are not so justifiable. And my sense is that that's just part of the deal. You know, we started this conversation talking about its importance of people being sceptical. And uh, and to some extent, what you're describing is people being sceptical. There was a very um, infamous quote by a British government minister uh, where he said people have had enough of experts. And of course, people were outraged by that. Uh, And to some extent, I think the motivation behind it wasn't positive. But to some extent, Cochrane exists because people wanted to challenge experts who frequently do have conflicts of interests and do have hobby horses and so on by the use of evidence. So, you know, if we, I remember you talked to Gordon Guyatt in one of your earlier conversations. Well, you know, those people that were setting up Cochrane in the early 1990s, you know, were challenging expert-driven medicine and using evidence as a way of challenging 
the sort of biases inherent in being an expert. And I think that so part of being a, a, an organisation like Cochrane is that you have to take some of that. And there will be people who bring an axe to grind. And there will, but there will also be some people who make serious points that it's really important that they're just not dismissed because they don't happen to have a PhD or something like that. It's only recently that you left Cochrane. Can you give us a sense of your feelings on leaving after 10 years at the helm there, like as the editor-in-chief? I'm imagining a mix of sadness, relief, <laughs> pride. I mean, what? give us a sense of what you were feeling. Well, uh, you're absolutely spot on. Um, my decision to step down was a very difficult one, and it, uh, it I made it quite slowly. As you know, I'd had heart surgery somewhat out of the blue in 2017. But even at that point, I'd been in Cochrane for eight years, and I was beginning to think about, uh, was there some other challenge that I might like to take on? So the decision to leave was really difficult. I mean, I really think of the 10 years in Cochrane as being one of the uh, enormous privileges of my life. Just before we close, David, you mentioned the heart surgery. I'm not sure if you want to talk more about that, but but my question there would be, did that experience of having that heart scare a couple of years ago, having heart surgery, being on the other side of the consultation, if you will, um, being a patient in the system, did that in any way change your attitudes to the importance of evidence? Did it strengthen those attitudes? What was going on there? It certainly challenged me in certain, lots of different ways. And I suppose one of it was about thinking about how evidence gets into a consultation and gets into decision-making and so on. So from quite early on, post-operatively, my cardiologist was saying that, you know, you ought to be taking this treatment. You know, you should know as an evidence person that it's been uh, shown in the evidence to be effective. And, and I was not that keen. Uh, because I knew the drug would reduce my blood pressure and I already occasionally felt faint when I stood up, which is a sign of low blood pressure. And um, and I was kept trying to say, yes, but you know, does the evidence say that in people who are already taking all the drugs I'm taking already? Or does it just say it in people out of the blue? And, and so there was that sense in which you know, evidence has to be configured around the patient and the context of that patient in front of you. And I came back to that because, you know, I think you, you know, if you'd said, well, what works in heart disease? You know, there's all sorts of drugs that were, have been shown to work to some degree in heart disease. But you have to have all of them. And do you then, do, you know, are there ways in which you can say, well, if you're taking that and that, you probably don't need that, and so on. And so um, I, I guess it made me think more about the importance of applicability and also about decisions. You know, to some extent, I, because I still consider myself quite young, um, was prepared to, to accept the risk of feeling faint when I stand up and, um, and, and maybe other Sort of, uh, irritating but not harmful side effects because you know I want to survive longer so that sort of trade-off of benefit and harm being a more sort of complex thing and I guess if I was you know 89 as opposed to um, 59 I might think differently about that trade-off uh, and so ha having a, a sense of which different people might come uh, it might quite sensibly come to different decisions about what they want to do I think it was very much emphasized by my experience. I'm intrigued to know whether you found it easy to find the evidence uh, because, I mean, I was just having a conversation with someone this afternoon, just, you know, uh, we were both watching our children at the park and, and she was explaining just how 
awfully difficult it is for a person outside of the healthcare system to try and find reliable evidence. Um, of course, Cochrane reviews are, are one of those forms of evidence. But I mean, how difficult did you find it uh, as a patient to, to put your hands on the most relevant evidence? In some areas, it's easy. Uh, you know, I think in terms of drugs, it's generally easier. I mean, I have to say the area that I find the most challenging is diet. You know, what diet should I be eating as somebody who's just had um, heart surgery? I still don't know. And I'm supposed to know about these things. Is it a low-fat diet? Well, it used to be a low-fat diet. When I went to the training, the excellent cardiac rehab at the hospital, they were very clear, you need a low-fat diet, blah, blah, blah. And I kept thinking, well, that's not what I'm reading. That's not what the literature... I'm reading, my, my reading of the contemporary literature is that it's mostly about sugar, particularly in somebody like me who has a tendency to diabetes. And then you read people who say, oh, it's not about the fat at all. Eat, eat butter, eat lard, you know, take animal fats, doesn't matter to you. Just reduce the sugar. And um, my guess what it's it's worth is that somewhere between those two poles there's an answer. But it's incredibly difficult to get a really authoritative view on what we all should be eating. And that's not doesn't just relate to heart disease, it relates to all other things as well. You know, I think, you know, it's why systematic reviews are essential. But of course, you know, as we said earlier in this interview, often the evidence from trials and from reviews is uncertain and different people would interpret it in different ways. So, you know, I share your frustration and difficulties because I've definitely experienced that you know I wanted to know what diet I should be eating and although I have some appreciation of the literature I still don't absolutely know with certainty what it is that I should be avoiding and what I should be uh, focusing on. David Tovey I wish you luck with that endeavour in terms of the diet but thank you very much for your time today. Thank you it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a recommended dose of Dr. David Tovey, until recently Editor-in-Chief of the Cochrane Library. Thanks to Shauna Hurley at Cochrane Australia for production, to Jan Mutz for editing, and Duncan Jarvis for recording in the studio of the BMJ, which co-publishes this podcast. I'm Ray Moynihan, and thanks to you for listening. (laughs) 